0: Welcome to Fifth Wall's Building to Zero podcast. The real estate industry is the world's single largest contributor to climate change. At Fifth Wall, we're on a mission to help the industry eradicate its carbon emissions and build to zero. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode of Building to Zero, I'm joined by Zach Given, the host of Tiny House Nation and an advocate the tiny house movement. We discuss how tiny homes can contribute to decarbonizing the real estate industry, the concept of small home, big life, and using tiny homes as an affordable housing solution. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Zach, thank you so much for joining. Where are you coming in from today?
1: I'm in Bellingham, Washington, in the most northwestern corner of our country. Oh, nice,
0: nice. I'm actually on Park City, Utah. So I've, I've been out here basically for the, uh, the whole pandemic. Um, We're both really, in
1: amazing ski destinations, that means.
0: It, it is, it is. It's great in the summer and in the winter. But uh, maybe just to start, can you give people your background? And obviously, you have such a unique journey in going from professional skier to being an advocate and a star on a a show about tiny homes. But can you walk people through that that career arc for,
1: for you? Well, before I ever was kind of being paid anything for skiing, I was a ski bum on a large level for a long, long time. And that just meant that, you know, I was living uh, very minimally in a way so that I could just free up a lot of time to pursue skiing. You know, I was working as a carpenter ever since high school, so kind of paying for my life that way and then taking large chunks of time in the winter off and just really paring down on the necessities so that I could, could go skiing as much as I could, so... You know, tiny homes for me, like, it's really this kind of combination of those two aspects of my life. And when I saw it, you know, the first time I ever saw a tiny home, it was just like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, there wasn't a lot of questions about, okay, can I do that or whatever? It was just like, boom, boom. That's amazing. And it's on wheels. Let me have one.
0: How old were you when, you know, kind of the the, the passion for the movement began?
1: I mean, I, the first time I ever heard of what a tiny or saw a picture of one was 2011, probably. Um, but I had been, you know, in 2003, I bought an old, old RV and converted it and moved to Washington. You know, I had a van, you know, I put a wood stove in my van and it was kind of like my winter kind of travel adventure mobile. And, the thing that you have to realize about skiing, you probably do, is that that sort of uh, mentality is not, it's not new in the ski culture, right? So I'd been living in that space a long time before I'd ever heard of actually a tiny house.
0: And maybe can you, can you help people that just aren't familiar with even the phraseology of tiny homes? Like, what is the definition of a tiny home? Like, how do you, how do you explain it to people when you're first introducing the concept to them?
1: I mean, a tiny home essentially is a home that's fully functioning. So bathroom, kitchen, everything you'd expect in a larger home that's built to similar standards, only under 400 square feet. So that could be on a foundation. It could be on wheels. There are other versions of tiny homes that people call tiny homes, which are essentially just kind of converted tough sheds. But in my definition, that doesn't really qualify because it's not like a fully functioning home.
0: Got it. So so it's it's 400 square feet. That's the hard line definition of what constitutes a tiny home.
1: Well, you got to you got to make a definition at some point, you know. You got to draw the line somewhere. So, you know, back in 2016, I was part of a crew of people that went to the IRC, which is the, you know, the people that write the building codes and successfully articulated for the need for inclusion of exemptions for homes that are built under 400 square feet. So that's kind of the first time that somebody like put it down on paper, this is what a tiny home is and we've kind of gone with it ever since.
0: And I wanna get to kind of the the regulatory side of this and why that was even necessary, because it's probably not intuitive to people, but before we do, what are the benefits of living in a tiny home, both for the homeowner, but also for society?
1: I mean, for me, it was super obvious. Um, Is just avoiding that financial trap that leaves people kind of treading water and unable to kind of pursue their dreams or even take a job that's in line with the degree that they got out of college. Many people find themselves just kind of taking the first job they can get just to support their life. Uh, and watching those dreams slip away. So, you know, there's two different ways that you can kind of empower yourself in this world. Um, And one is to get a better job that gives you more money so that then you can have more free time to pursue into what you want. And the other is just to pare down on the expenses of your life and translate that into freedom. So, you know, in in essence, for me, that's what it was. I kind of feel like I'm a, a pretty decent ambassador for the movement because of that, because it really was a necessary thing in my life to pursue skiing, And then skiing ended up actually becoming a reality in my life and becoming, you know, this thing that I did as an occupation that took me around the world. And I was able to have all these amazing experiences. Um, And it was a direct result, you know, because I didn't come from a rich family. It was a direct result of me kind of taking a hard look at like my life and thinking about what I can do to just make sure that I, that I'm able to do what it is that I'm, that I'm passionate about, you know, and at that time it was skiing my passion's have grown since then
0: and and so obviously it does right provide that that financial freedom obviously for no other reason than the cost and the maintenance is, is lower but you know have there been any discussions around just like From a quality of life standpoint for the individual, you know, how do you look at that? Like, how do you quantify that? Because personally, I I don't own a tiny home. And I think a lot about how complex my not tiny home is constantly. And I don't know how that benefits me.
1: Well, I mean, it's easy. It's really, it's about small home, big life. You know, and if you have to quantify it and quantify it in one way, that's that's the easy way to look at it. You know, it's it's about like, okay, well, what's the trade-off when we're focused on these large homes and we're focused on paying on those large homes, all that time that we're putting into the job that may or may not be fulfilling to earn that income to just pay for that space? That's a real trade-off to something that's actually much more important in the long run, which is your time in this life, you know, especially in your the years that you have energy that you you really enjoy enjoying and you want to go explore. So, you know, don't wait until you're too old to actually be able to go adventure and travel and go to climb mountains and things to pare down on, to stop working, right? Which is the game plan of so many people. And the conclusion of many older Americans is, yeah, do it now, you know, because it's so easy for you to, push that off and think you're gonna adventure and then just get in that trap and start running on the treadmill.
0: And just to push on that, I'm curious, like what do you think that instinct is, you know, to, to get large, probably unnecessarily large home? Is that a Is that kind of a nesting instinct? Is that a, you know, is that a, an, like an artifact of kind of our, our consumer society and like, you know, this, this mythology of, of home ownership, like, where does that come from? Where
1: did that start? It comes from a lot of places, obviously culturally in America, you know, big home was the indicator of success, right. Which was, you know really kind of fed into people's identity, right? And so I think that fortunately that aspect of our culture is starting to shift a little bit, right? People are looking at the value of someone's person not necessarily in their material possession, but more of like this experiential appreciation, what they do and how they live and and who they help, things like that. However, it's still America, right? We still have this drive for larger homes and it's being shown in the fact that, you know, homes are still getting larger because in my mind there are other significant factors besides culturally. And and that's that, you know, we have been using homes as an investment tool for a long time. And it's been a source of kind of easy money I would say, for people in our country to kind of flip homes, to take a smaller home, put money into it, and almost always is expanding the size is what is really going to get you that return on your investment. And so that's been a big factor is that it seems like there's been no end to people's uh, the size of homes that people will buy. So we keep building bigger, bigger homes because it makes people more money. And I think that that as well is maybe coming a little bit to a close in terms of at least not um, having the same level of appreciation in the housing market that drives that kind of flipping mentality. So yeah, I, I think that there's another third piece of it, which is that people aren't necessarily aware. Like a lot of people are environmentalist in their minds, but they are just are they lack the information and the awareness of how much their homes and that space and the size of their home really does contribute to their own personal carbon footprint. So, you know, part of what I do is try to try to share that awareness because I do think that there's been a disproportionate conversation within my lifetime when it comes to energy efficiency and fossil fuels towards transportation. Whereas housing and real estate obviously represents a very large piece of it. And it just doesn't seem like it's being treated with the same amount of urgency.
0: Absolutely. That's something obviously like we've Focused a lot on, which is you know the transportation industry seems to you know get all the the mindshare when it comes to decarbonization. But in reality, the real estate industry is far more contributive. The, the real estate industry broadly defined, inclusive of you know, the full life cycle of real estate assets, are far more consumptive of, of you know energy and resources than all of transportation. And so, you know, when you think about a tiny home, there it's intuitively going to consume less materials, less energy on an operating basis. But what are some of the non-intuitive ways that having a tiny home, you know, leads to a more sustainable lifestyle for the homeowner?
1: Well, I mean, there are some non-intuitive ways, but the t- intuitive ways that people realize, a lot of times people don't realize how much difference there is, right? The average tiny home uses on average compared with the average American home, 7% of the energy. So it's not like tiny homes are just a little more energy efficient. They're a whole lot more energy efficient. And especially because they are newly constructed typically because know, they're kind of a new product, they're being done and they're being built with very good thermal envelopes and the construction techniques are much more representative of what we use modern in our our modern society and residential construction. So um, there is that aspect, but there's also a whole range of kind of lifestyle transitions that have been kind of proven that. People end up going through regardless. I mean, it's simply small things of just not buying as much clothes, not buying as many things because you don't have as big of a closet. You know, each one of those items has a carbon footprint. And it doesn't, if you're just take one person and they stop wearing and buying quite as many clothes and they stop acquiring as many things, that's one thing. But if you actually do that on a broad level and allow at least the people who want to live in a minimalist, way to be able to live that way, you are going to have an effect. It's about that numbers. And you know, that's, that's one of the ironic things about this is that it's like nobody in the tiny home movement is trying to say, Hey, everybody needs to live small and like try to shame people. This is, this is so specifically about, there are people who do look at their, their home and want to pare down for all sorts of reasons, economic, environmental. And right now, the way that our rules are set up, we simply can't. And that seems ridiculous. In in a time when we have absolute housing emergency, a homeless epidemic, and then a climate catastrophe that we wouldn't be doing anything or everything in our power as a society to enable people, maybe incentivize people to live in smaller spaces. The fact that we have to argue for even legality to be allowed to do it seems insane.
0: And and is part of that, you think, because there's so many vested interests in having outsized homes meaning obviously there's a lot of industries that are you know directly dependent on people wanting large homes and larger and larger homes everything from raw materials lumber through to the home building industry through to the entire you know residential capital markets architecture that supports it from you know the federal agencies to all of the major banks obviously they are incentivized to want larger homes. But the the, the second order dynamic is also interesting, which, which you identified, which is if you have a smaller closet, you're probably going to buy fewer clothes, right? And, and yep. that has downstream implications around consumption. So it's part of it that so many vested there's so many vested interests in us needing lots of space and consuming lots of space, that that's what creates the friction in the system towards allowing tiny
1: homes? I I would say that there is a huge amount, of obviously a vested interest in just promoting consumerism, right? And anything that is kind of coming from a minimalist perspective is a bit of a threat to that. However, I don't believe that the people, I don't believe that there's a large percentage of our population that doesn't look at climate as a moral necessity right, of us to do something about it. And I don't believe that even people that are profiting from blatant consumerism don't want for other options to be enabled, right? I think the real problem with legality, and keep in mind, I have to explain a little bit, but it's when you're talking about legality with tiny homes, there's kind of two two little bit of fights. And one is building codes and one is zoning codes. So they're two different things, right? So what has happened with tiny homes on wheels specifically is that a tiny home on wheels is currently treated as an RV. And in the RV definition, in paragraph one, it says it's not for full-time living. So they're only allowed to be lived in for 160 days, 180 days, typically. According right. to who? Right in right in the RVRI manufacturer's certification. It's a structure that is built as a recreational vehicle. It is not intended for full-time living, right? Got it. So the reason that tiny homes are being built to RV codes right now is because that there is no existing classification that's for tiny homes particularly. So the, the, the problem that advocates like myself have in terms of gaining legalization is that there's this almost a bureaucratic passing of the buck because the agency that is typically overseeing the certification of RVs, they don't deal with housing, right? That's for the home builders department and the home builders, as soon as they see something's on wheels, they say, that's not us. We don't do that. Right. And so I think that there's a huge amount of goodwill towards tiny homes. If there really is, it's, it's this affordable housing model that I think of as like a spear point to kind of pierce through nimbyism. And it really has successfully done that. It's in comparison with other affordable housing options and models, there is drastically less resistance to tiny homes than there are apartment buildings or complexes or mobile home parks, right? So this is an important tool that advocates need to be, be looking at. And and what makes it really, really the spear point of this is that, well. It's, it's being used as backyards. It's being used in tiny homes and backyards. But And I, I kind of got a little bit sidetracked with where I was going with that. But essentially, tiny homes have this ability to be an affordable housing option because they're actually being welcomed into communities. And that's really, really important, right? And,
0: and, the, re- and the reason for that, just, just to understand that, is that it's just a more desirable neighbor, <laughs> to have a tiny home than it is to have affordable housing or manufactured housing. Is that, is that really what's driving it?
1: You know, I mean, I think that it's, it's just a little less threatening. They're, they're built typically they're built so that they look not like an RV. They're looking like a, a home. Right? Yep. And and we also have these things called ADUs, accessory dwelling units. So all over our country, cities are opening up to accessory dwelling units, and it's considered kind of the most gentle form of urban density. And essentially, a tiny home is no different than the typical accessory dwelling unit. And that's kind of a fully functioning standalone unit, only it's on a trailer, right? Yeah. So basically, that's why I feel like there actually at this time, there's a huge amount of goodwill on all sides. And it really is just a matter of educating people who are interested, who are kind of city planners and commissioners and mayors. Of this dynamic in terms of that there's this really great housing option, but we can't utilize it because there's no specific legal avenues for people to build to these standards. So
0: there's this regulatory obstruction that kind of exists, right? Where where it sounds like a lot of local regulators just simply don't understand the construct and the existing paradigms of you know zoning laws and you know RV regulations are just not applicable, or they're just kind of not really relevant to tiny homes. But maybe just, just walk me through that in a practical example. Let's say I am interested in having a tiny home in the city of Los Angeles, and I go and I acquire, you know, my own piece of land, my own piece of dirt. Am I actually restricted in being able to build a 400 square foot home on that piece of dirt?
1: If it's on a foundation, you're good to go, typically. Right. But as soon as it's on wheels, even if it's, you know, connected to utilities, hooked up to a septic, you know, locked to the ground simply because it's on wheels, really, in most places in our country, exempts it from being treated as a residential unit. Right. And so, yes, the answer is yes and no depending on your foundation.
0: Wow. So so meaning it's actually possible that if I decided I didn't want a foundation, I just wanted to leave it on wheels, I couldn't put a tiny home on wheels on a plot of land that I own. Like that is actually a a reality in in many parts of the country.
1: Almost everywhere. Almost everywhere. You could do it, but you wouldn't be allowed to live there full time, right? There's nothing preventing anybody from living in an RV for 180 days a year, typically. You know, some places have it down to 30 days in cities and whatnot. But getting that exemption and allowing it to be, you know, used for 360 days is really the battle that I'm on. You know, I, I'm a carpenter and I think of like, you know, activism as like kind of like woodworking where regardless of if you want a polished surface, you want to get to all these issues, you got to start with like an 80, to 80 grit sandpaper. And you got to get those high points, right? And then you can work on a finer grit and then you can get down and eventually you get to that 400 grit and you're and you're polishing all the issues that you're seeing, but you can't do it right away. So for me, it's really just about focusing on getting um, people to look at this one very specific dynamic, which is if we are already allowing, if, if I as a builder can build you an ADU and put it on a foundation and then I can build the exact same structure identical structure and put it on a, on a trailer on a steel foundation. And the one on a permanent foundation is deemed safe and healthy for 360 days. But the one on the trailer is not deemed safe and healthy for 360. Days. And I want to know why, when it's the exact same structure, what about it is not making it safe and healthy. And the reality is that, um, you know, basically what I'm pointing at is that the only thing that you could really point to as being the hazard involved in that is how you hook it up to utilities, how you hook it up to SEP, right? And if you want to have a debate about whether or not we can do this safely, then we can have that debate, but the structure is built identical and it shouldn't be treated any different. And- we do already have in place existing safe methods for hooking up mobile homes and, and RVs that are widely used and, and heavily regulated. So we already know how to do this safely.
0: And is this kind of, you know, an example of, you know, the, the private sector? right? And, and consumers innovating and creating demand for products that that do solve, you know, needs, their needs, but also society's yeah. needs around affordable housing, around lowering the cost of living in, you know, cities that are becoming increasingly, you know, inhospitable to yeah. you know certain incomes. So it, there's kind of this private sector solution that just doesn't fit congruently into any of the existing paradigms. And, you know, the, the public sector is just too brittle to adapt to it is that kind of what's happening here
1: i mean that's a really apt way to put it um you know it's it's that there is this tool this product Right, that's been identified that has a vast demand for it, right? And the public sector has definitely identified this. You know, we're not, it's kind of a a mom and pop industry, but definitely the big players have already identified the potential of tiny homes, right? But there is, there's this like governmental regulation that's getting in the way of the private sector actually being able to develop housing solutions. And I think the reason, you know, you can point to the kind of community, consumer society. You can point to the, the regulatory obstacles, this kind of like it doesn't fit into a neat place, so it's a little bit more work. Um, but I think what really is keeping people from acting and changing the laws is that people don't really believe that it's going to have much effect on either affordable housing options or climate. Right. They just they like they would do it, and they, but it's just kind of a bit of work and they just don't believe it's really going to have that much effect. And that's why I think it's really important to have these conversations to really dissect what this tool really is and how it can serve society. And in order to do that, I think what you have to do is you have to look at what our housing needs are in this country. And, and if you talk to economists, they essentially point to the fact that we have not been building enough housing to keep up with the demand in the last 10 years. Right. And they put that number somewhere at around four million homes that we need to be building. That's that's um,
0: the, that's the structural shortfall, meaning that that's yes. that's the number of homes that we should have built over the last decade, but didn't.
1: That's right. And and the um, and that would have kept this appreciation housing, the appreciation at a a better clip, so that it wouldn't have gotten so unaffordable and so unattainable for so many Americans, right? What I believe is that you have to look at not only building homes, but you have to build the type of homes that people need. And in order to do that, you have to look at how our demographics have been shifting so drastically over the last four decades. And to give an illustration of what I mean by this is that today, single people are almost 50% of our country. So single people and married couples without children represent 3 quarters of our population and nuclear families is only 20%. So what we have is we have a housing stock that essentially has been built in opposite of that where 75% of the housing in our in our country essentially is constructed for the needs of a nuclear family. And so to me it's like we need to start building housing that's appropriate for the need and recognizing that we have a huge amount of single where our country used to be nearly 50% families. Now we have nearly 50% single adults and that's massively significant. And what it's led to is essentially just a huge amount of Americans living in large homes by themselves. And it also
0: just thinking, thinking that through, it also has this kind of almost like double convexity to it where, you know, if you know, people are single for longer, what would have other, you know, a a household that would have otherwise occupied a single home now, because the product doesn't match their needs. Now they're occupying two homes that are otherwise designed for households. So, So we're, we're actually like doubly as consumptive of space and materials and energy to house the same number of people. Is that the right way to think about it?
1: I mean, yeah. Essentially it's like we're using our existing housing stock extremely inefficiently, right? And when you point to okay, how can tiny homes help us in terms of our energy demand of our country, that's a really big one because we can solve the housing crisis two ways. We can keep building just more and more large homes and keep putting more and people into these large homes and that's going to maybe get people housed and solve solve the need for housing. But that's constructing large and large homes where we could essentially build smaller places that a lot of these older, I mean, a lot of the people that are living in, in homes by themselves are older Americans and give those older Americans desirable places to downsize and essentially increase the numbers of homes in the housing supply simply by utilizing our housing stock more efficiently
0: right and 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 it's interesting also from a sustainability standpoint you know when you build a home you can't unbuild a home so you know once you build a larger home than the market needs you know the the energy cost right and and how consumptive that is you know from a carbon perspective it doesn't go away you know you can't put that genie back in the bottle once you've built that that big home and so you're effectively amortizing all that embodied carbon in that asset over years and years and years so it's interesting because you know that it's like many things in the, the 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 climate crisis the the decisions we make right now are consequential and we're going to be paying down for years and and, and decades. And I guess your your point is that really being an advocate for tiny homes will have huge downstream consequences on both the affordable housing crisis, but also, you know, the climate crisis. And, And I think what's fascinating about that is those two things are normally at odds, right? Oftentimes we think of affordable housing, right? And actually lowering the cost of housing and building carbon neutral housing as being very difficult to reconcile because it's more expensive to build things that are carbon neutral, Right.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the, a real easy way to address affordability is build a smaller home. Right. If right. It requires that much less material. It, it's it, like it the
0: solution possible. that's hiding in plain sight. It's like well, maybe just build things smaller.
1: Yeah. And, and we do have I mean, when I say there's a lot of Americans, it's like it's over 35 million owner occupied homes are lived in by one adult. And a lot of people just want a big home. They love their home. But there are a certain amount of that population in my mind that are in their homes, not because they think they need the space or they love it all that much, but they think it's making their life that much happier. They're doing it because there's no other good places to downsize. To downsize, to sell their home right now means, you know, looking at where you can get a one or two bedroom apartment which is typically way removed from the community that you've been a part of for years and years. And so that is a significant factor in people's decision to stay in their homes longer and longer, which if you talked with, you know, economists is a big factor in the affordability issue is that older Americans are staying, the, the homeowner retention rate has been going up and up and up. So, you know, I think that there's, there's a, A bit of it in terms of that there's just not really good options to downsize. And if there were, and tiny homes on backyards is a great one to do it because for older person, it means flexibility. It doesn't mean building a home and the foundation and then having to live there and then having to upend yourself again, it means you can downsize into the, your own backyard. You can free up that home for a family that might need the space or you can create a space for a caretaker to enable you to live for longer. But it creates all these options and the fact that it's on wheels means that it's not tied to the property. So at some point, they can decide to potentially Sell the whole property, take their tiny home with them, put it into there's all these, you know, communities popping up all around the country of kind of retire age people interested in living kind of like a, a bit of not an assisted living facility, but a, a community of older people there. Everybody kind of help them help each other out that's a real thing. So, the ability of the wheels is another significant aspect to this because people think, "Oh, well, we already allow ADUs if somebody wants to live in their backyard, go for it." But they don't recognize that that completely factors into someone's decision because you're building it permanently on that foundation and you and you still are going to be faced with that scary moment of where am I going to go?
0: It's interesting, yeah, again because, you know, it's not a dynamic that that you, I I think about personally a lot, but the idea that, you know, the land is inherently conjoin permanently with the improvements and if you're able to disambiguate those two things the carbon footprint certainly the embodied carbon goes down dramatically because in being in being mobile the home is reusable and has a resiliency and a durability that that's obviously incredibly unique and allows for just higher levels of you know consumer choice and consumers optimizing for their own preferences and optimizing for mobility and lifestyle changes that, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting point because, you know, this conversation for me has been, you know, elucidating of all these assumptions that, that I don't question. About the nature of housing and the nature of homes and the construct of why we buy bigger homes that aren't necessarily suitable or applicable for the lives and the lifestyles we now have.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, you got to look at you know the the um, housing stock and what our options are, right? Because we already identified you know, what percentage of the population is single adults. Well, only 12% of our housing stock is one bedroom apartment. And if you look at like a really well-built professional tiny home, what you can see is that this is a very appropriately designed space for a single person. And so essentially by allowing tiny homes, you're just enabling us to pad out that supply of smaller options, which are so desperately needed, not only by our, just the Common sense makeup of the demographics of our country, but it's also desperately needed for the environment to enable people who want to live in a minimalist capacity to do so. And I I think that the the last piece that I believe would motivate cities or policymakers to really take tiny homes seriously and tiny homes in backyards is the dynamic in terms of what mobility does to the implication or implementation of these types of units for affordable housing. And and when I say that, I mean the mobility breaks up that dynamic where the property owner has to pay 100% for the ADU in the backyard. So ADUs typically do not get put on the rental market in high high numbers at all. And it's essentially because people who can afford another construction project and their mortgage don't typically you know, have that incentive to rent out their backyard.
0: It's a it's a it's a capex problem, effectively. Meaning, we're we're asking the least well positioned, you know, uh, part of society to make an investment that it, it can't otherwise make, and expecting the private market to kind of solve, then therefore the housing. Crisis, which clearly it won't.
1: And also, I mean, ADUs in some ways kind of go against the goals of affordability because you just took a property that was worth what? $450,000. You throw a $200,000 ADU in the backyard or $150,000 ADU, and now you got a 500 and something. $1,000 $1,000 property. But the, the most significant factor is that ADUs are not a tool for people who need assistance because it's such an upfront expense. As soon as you allow it to be movable, it means that there's can be a partnership. There can be a division of the upfront expense. And that is massively significant in terms of who gets to utilize this opportunity and how many can end up really supporting affordable housing. Because essentially, if you had a property and you were kind of you know, on a fixed income, you could use some, some rental income but you can't take out another loan. You can't flip another construction project. Well, I can take out a loan on a tiny home and then we can partner. You can, for, for maybe, you know, $10,000, $15,000 can run utilities to your backyard. I can rent out that space, lock my de- myself down, hook up to the utilities, and you can start making a consistent income stream, right? And I get- again, the- it's,
0: the, it's the disambiguation of the, the land from the unit. The mobility is the, the unlock there. And I think what's interesting also is it allows for just, I know regulations are not there Yeah. But, you know, if you were to envision a a kind of future state, an optimal future state of that, it allows for a lot of modularity, meaning you could have two units in your backyard uh, at one point and or change that to one unit. And that modularity also allows for better consumer choice and better you know, adaptation of the housing stock ultimately to a changing demographic.
1: And honestly, are your neighbors going to prefer me and my buddies to come into your backyard for like two months and just fill the space with construction noise and traffic? Right. Or do you think <laughs> that they would prefer that we built it in like an enclosed environment where you actually can do it at a higher efficiency? You can get the homes more buttoned up, cost down, and then we just transport it into your backyard and you just lock it down and you're good to go.
0: Exactly. And, right. and when you don't want it anymore, it moves. And the next homeowner didn't inherit a demolition headache, right? Or something they don't
1: want. Yeah, exactly. And and I think what it really does is, you know, it enables, even though these homes can be moved and, and people that are looking at sustainability will identify right off the bat, well, you think that it's environmentally sound to be taking diesel trucks and trucking these homes all over the place, right? And the answer is no. It's not. It is definitely not. Portability does require energy, right? So you start moving these homes around, but you can understand these homes are not necessarily intended to be moved more than maybe three, four times in their lifetime. But the fact that they can be moved frees up all this opportunity and options for people that live in them. And it means people that are forced to move don't necessarily have to upend their life out of a space that they like. They can literally take their space with them. And instead of having to go through that, um, you know, anybody who's been through a bunch of moves in your life and you understand just that like, oh, this like sickening feeling of having to go through the entire process again. Yeah. There's a lot of advantage to that being able to be move with you. And there's just that sense of security that comes from home ownership. So it's, it's a sense that the numbers work out. It's that people can get into a home that they get that sense of, okay, security from home ownership, even if they don't own the property, at least they get that sense of like, this is my spot. Right. Right. And that's really powerful. I do a lot of work with veterans and homeless veterans and like that sense of like, I got my, my pad. That is huge. The pride, especially if, if you say I got my pad and the person's not, you know, they're not, they're ashamed of it. They're not happy with their place. They're like actually embarrassed of it. Well, that's like an infliction to their ego. But if somebody's really satisfied and proud of their spot and they're like, this is mine, you know, maybe I helped build it a little bit that manifests uh, into people's self-esteem you know, which just goes so far into all sorts of aspects of people's lives,
0: and it also enfranchises you in the economy, right? It it it, it'll, it beyond the affordability and accessibility and mobility of it. Yeah. It just psychologically, you're you're more you're more likely, you're more capable, you're more apt to engage in the local economy by virtue of owning an asset. Um, I mean, that seems simply, fairly obvious to me.
1: Simply in anything that we can do as a society to help homeless people. Uh, be self-sufficient in any way is extremely good investment. You know, it's great bang for the buck because homeless people and especially homeless veterans um, who are, you know, eligible for, for all sorts of services, they're very expensive, you know, it's actually very expensive to have people on the street. And the sad part about it is that homeless population is only 0.2% or 0.02% of our entire population, but it occupies so much brain power and emotional energy of everybody in our country. And in my mind, it um, it is very expensive to address it when you're talking about building affordable housing in the current direction in what we've done. Allowing tiny homes and backyards does another really important thing for our country and it, it, it enables, it empowers people who want to be support structures for friends and family that are falling on hard time. It empowers them to do that in a way that's reasonable for their life. And, and what I mean by that is that if you are falling on hard times and you want to sleep on my couch, well, there's an inherent intrusion to that. And even if I have an extra room, you're still in my space, in my house. And my wife is only going to tolerate it for so long, right? And even if I love you as a brother, at some point, I'm going to say this is enough. If you could have a tiny home in my backyard, your ability to stay with me, my ability to be a support structure for you is so much greater. And for every homeless person in our country, I guarantee, I mean, some people have no friends and no family and they have no connections and that's greatly sad, but the vast majority all have people people in their lives friends and families whose hearts are you know broken because every day they know that this person is just in this place of misery and they have no ability in their mind to assist them. So if we want to do something about homelessness and we want to do it in a way that doesn't just concentrate all the people, of the lowest like economic spectrum into shelters and to these villages, a good way to do it would be empower their loved ones to give them some help. Right.
0: And, 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 you know, enfranchise that, that capital. And obviously like you have also the downstream benefits of what that does psychologically to the individual, but also what that does downstream for the the environment and for the local economy.
1: And that brings us back to mobility, right? Because mobility is the key there. Because if you're falling on hard times for me to go and, you know, construct a tiny home in my backyard on a permanent foundation, that's a committed move. And that means you're going to be in my backyard for a long time, right? And the whole goal is to get you back on your feet and maybe get you out of there. So mobility, having that mobility means that like, that's actually a massively positive thing for a society. And I think part of what we've been fighting against is just this deeply entrenched notion of uh, just uh, skepticism and suspicion towards people that are unrooted towards human cultures and nomadic tribes, right? That didn't have home bases, right? So in societies, we've never been very accommodating for this kind of group. And what I believe is that, you know, obviously the world's changed, you know, modern people are traveling much more. People are staying in their homes a lot less, a lot shorter times, right? And moving more frequently in their lives, you know, and to me, I think just allowing homes to, be uh, transportable or movable is really a, a response to the needs of modern society.
0: Well, Zach, this has been so interesting to get your perspective. And obviously, it's it's fascinating. And it's, it's important, obviously, all the advocacy work that you're doing around it. I, I'd love to end just with a series of kind of rapid fire questions just to get people kind of in, engaged in, in, in what you're doing and how they can get involved. But I guess First question, you know, what advice would you give to someone who would like to build their own tiny home?
1: Do it. There's no way that you can replicate the amount of like appreciation that you will have when sitting on your couch and looking around the walls. Like if you actually had a hand in the construction. So don't necessarily do the whole thing yourself, but definitely be a part of as much as you can. What was the biggest challenge
0: you personally faced when you moved in to a tiny home?
1: I had no problems. I was a 28-year-old bachelor with a girlfriend that liked to ski and wanted to travel. I mean, but in, in living in a tiny home, the number one problem was the height on the bed. The living in a loft where you're, you know, you don't have much headroom is in my mind, after many years of being a part of this, the number one unavoidable sacrifice. So what is the coolest amenity that you've seen in a tiny home? I mean, I coolest amenity. I mean, there's an amazing staircase that this guy from uh, Australia invented that just folds right off the wall. You know, that's the that's what I do is I make these kind of contraption inventions and I'm pretty proud that I don't ever like steal other people's ideas. But if I did, I'd steal that one for sure. Um, yeah, this is a great company out of Australia. They make these awesome staircases that could be utilized in not just a tiny home, but all over the place. So, you know, it's, it's funny because I do love, I love, I think about that as technology right? A lot of people don't look at anything other than like digital as technology, but like when somebody creates a new staircase that folds out of a wall, you know, with just like one finger that comes down to me, that is really important, you know, because that has really a lot of ramifications when you think about that on a global scale. Totally.
0: So normally, when I ask this question, um, it, it's highly hypothetical for for the recipient. But in your case, I think it's actually not hypothetical at all. But the question is, if you could just up and move anywhere, and forgetting the kind of real life consequences of it, where would you move and why?
1: New Zealand. Because I've never been there before. And last year I went to Australia and it was amazing. And I think New Zealand could be even cooler. Nice. What (laughs) book has influenced you the most? Oh, man. I mean, Jay Schaefer's book, The Tiny House Book. I mean, undeniably, like it's uh, it's it was the first time that I had ever seen a tiny home was Jay Schaefer's little tiny home. And then I didn't actually read his book until uh, like a year or two after I'd built my own tiny home. But that's been, I think, the source of the motivation for, I think, my activism within tiny homes is really listening to kind of his perspective on consumerism and, and minimalism. And then also learning about that kind of um, disconnect between people that are engaged in the environmental movement that have no awareness of how big of a role housing actually plays in overall carbon so so that was that's yeah if you, haven't, if you haven't read that and you're interested at all in tiny homes, start with Jay Schaefer's, The Tiny Home Book. Well, Zach, this has been so
0: interesting and obviously the work you're doing it is so important. Um, so it was just a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for sharing your insights. Well, listen, this has been great and I uh, keep doing what you're doing too. Great, well, thanks Zach. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building to Zero. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.